until Jesus comes, the true Christian church is always going to be challenged by false teachers. Some of those teachers will come from outside of the church to put pressure on the church of Jesus Christ, but others, as Paul warned in Acts chapter 20, will come from within the church. They'll rise up and use proof texts out of context to lead people astray. And this kind of teaching and a true Christian church cannot coexist. Um, That is, false teaching and the true teaching of God's Word cannot coexist. There has to be someone in the church who is charged with the responsibility of teaching sound doctrine, doctrine and refuting those who oppose it. And that is what Paul has left Timothy to do in the church. Uh, we talked a little bit last week about the fact that it's more than the responsibility of the pastor to guard what is entrusted to us. We looked at chapter 3, verse 15, saw that, that the church is the pillar and support of the truth so that we as a whole have a responsibility uh, because, in fact, if a, a leader leads you astray, starts teaching false things, and someone in here, or hopefully all of you, will rise up against that. And, um, and so there is more than just a pastor, but specifically the pastor has been given that charge. You, as a church, have called me to do that very thing. And so um, we work together in that, but, but I have the lead in that. Um, the church in Ephesus is about five years old at the time of this writing. And Paul had just recently visited there, and he discovered that there were men teaching strange doctrines, and they were addicted to myths and endless genealogy. And I say addicted because that word, pay attention to, we saw last week, is the same word that's translated as addicted in chapter 3. Timothy has been charged with preserving the true doctrine of Scripture. The false teachers, they are good at using the law, the law of Moses, We could say even the law of God. This is God's law. It was given to the Old Testament saint. And they used that law to force people into this ascetic or monk-like lifestyle. Compel people to believe that that you can't marry, you can't eat certain kinds of food. And Paul says, no, none of those things are off limits. Don't don't listen to them. In chapter 1, verse 7, Paul tells Timothy that, that they don't know what they're talking about or they don't know the things about which they make confident assertions. But Paul and Timothy do know what they're talking about, as he's going to state here in verse 8. They know that the true gospel produces genuine faith uh, in Christ, that that true gospel changes a person and results in genuine love. And that's what we saw last week. One of the ways that we can tell what true doctrine is, is what does it result in? What do, we, what do we see it turn into? If it turns into division and strife, then it's probably a good indication it's not from God. But if it results in genuine love, um, then, then it's, it is from God because that can only be produced by the Spirit. Paul and Timothy know the value of the law. They're not saying that the law is unimportant or non- unnecessary. They know the nature and the purpose of the law, and that's what this little short paragraph is about in verses 8 through 11. So would you read with me 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. This is the Word of God. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. 
according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So, tonight we're going to see that the law and and the gospel are not incompatible, or maybe a simpler way to say it is that they are compatible. Um, Not that we can um, use both of them, that that is, we're submitting ourselves to both the gospel and the law, but the law is not opposed to the gospel. See, Paul and Timothy, they know the true meaning of the law. They know the true purpose of the law, and they see that it actually serves a purpose within the gospel. But see, the, 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 these people who are ta- teaching strange doctor, doctrines do not understand what the law is all about. They think it's about earning our salvation, that if we do enough things that are in, consistent with the law of Moses, then God will have to accept us. And what... what they were pitting effectively was the law against the gospel. And Paul's saying, no, the law actually supports the gospel. It actually has a purpose. So let's first look at the nature of the law in verse 8. The nature of the law is that the law is good to those who use it properly. The law is good to those who use it properly. Okay, here he, he uses the word lawfully, but, but the idea is that it's used for its intended purpose. Notice this contrast that he starts with in verse 8. But we know. See, but, but we know. The implication is these, strange te- these teachers of strange doctrines, they don't know. But we know. Right? Look at the previous verse. Wanting to be teachers of the law, verse 7, even though they don't understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. So they don't understand the law. They're using it as a club on people's, over people's head, and they don't understand it. But we know, Paul says, you and I, Timothy, we know what the law is. They think the law is a restrictive set of guidelines that makes a person holy. But that was never the purpose of the law. The law was not meant to make a person holy. One of the purposes of the law was actually to reveal sin, as we'll see in the rest of the passage. See, when the the law is used improperly, it actually creates strife and fruitless discussion, which is exactly what happens there in Ephesus, verse 6. And it actually opposes the administration or the work of God. And that's what we see in verse 4. So what is it that Paul and Timothy know about the law? But we know, and the next line of verse 8 tells us, we know that the law is good. Well, what is good about the law? Well, as I've stated before, the eternal law of God is expressed in one way in the law of Moses. If we look at the law of Moses, we can actually get a picture into what God desires, what He loves. It expresses His heart to us. It shows His desire for His people to love Him and to love each other. And that's how the whole law can be summed up under those two. Love God, love your neighbor. Notice the qualification The law is only good for those who use it lawfully, the end of the verse says. So the key qualification for the the goodness of the law is in its use. If it's misused, then it's not going to be healthy. And in fact, the law, it can be schismatic. Much like a handgun, right? The handgun itself is not inherently bad. It is good if it's used lawfully but it's dangerous and schismatic if used wrongly. It's deadly, right? And so that's similar to what the law is. The law is good only as long as it's used properly. So how is it used? What's one of its great uses? Now, there are several reasons for the law, but here 
Paul only focuses on one. He gives us the purpose of the law in verses 9 through 11. The purpose of the law. And it is not to make a person holy. That's what the, the teachers of strange doctrine thought. It's to make us holy. Like if we just keep following all these rules, it's going to make us acceptable, righteous before God. But do you remember, um, I can't remember where it is, but by the works of the law, I think it's Paul that says this, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Okay, no man will be justified by the works of the law. So it's not going to make us holy. It's not going to prove our righteousness. It can't uh, because we are sinners. Instead, the purpose of the law is to expose sinners. The purpose of the law is to expose sinners. So in the first part of verse 9, we see that the law is not for the self-righteous. The law is not for the self-righteous. When we read this verse 9, it, it's kind of um, enigmatic at first. Um, but I think I, I want to try to show you that this is talking about a self-righteous per- person. So the law is go- good if it's used law- lawfully. Verse 9, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person but for those who are lawless and rebellious. So Paul here could be saying that the law um, doesn't justify the righteous because the, the righteous are already justified by faith. But I think what he's doing is he's using irony here. Do you remember the story of Jesus in Mark chapter 2 when the Pharisees condemned him? They said to his disciples, they're too afraid to talk to Jesus himself, but, but why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? What's his deal? He thinks he is so spiritual, and he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus knew what they were saying, and here's his response. It's not the healthy who need a physician, but the sick. Right? It's not the healthy who needs a doctor, but the sick. Do you have a stubborn family member like that? Somebody who clearly needs to go to the doctor, but doesn't think he needs a doctor? And so either you have to twist their arm or they have to be compelled in their own mind. I see some hand-waving here. It's getting a little charismatic. Better settle down. Um, The person has to be convinced that they're sick before they go to a doctor. It's not the healthy that need a doctor. What's Jesus saying? Is Is it that person that has all this, let's say, cancer in their body, they don't need the doctor? No, they do need it, but they don't recognize the need, right? And Jesus said the same thing about getting help from Him. He said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. What is He saying? Is He saying that those who are, you know, like the Pharisees, they're the one asking the question. Is He saying those self-righteous Pharisees are perfect and they don't need Christ? They don't need any salvation? Is that what He's saying? No, He's saying that those who are self-righteous don't see the problem. They're not convinced they have to go even though they have this this terrible disease that's ripping through their body. They need a Savior. They spiritually don't see it. And I think that's what Paul is doing here in verse 9. He's using the same kind of language. He's saying the law was not made for the righteous. Not talking about you and I who have uh, accepted the, the, the message of the Gospel, accepted the, the offer of salvation and who are counted as righteous. Not talking about us. Okay? Instead, he's talking about those people who are self-righteous. Those people who, 
who don't realize that they're sinners. You see, the ones who are sinners recognize that the law is actually like a mirror. It sho- a mirror. It shows a person who is willing to actually look. It shows them their utter sinfulness. It's like the man who finally realizes, you know what, I am not healthy. I do need to go to a doctor. He finally allows the doctor to look at him. So, the law doesn't save us. The law doesn't make us holy. But it does expose our sin. It's used to warn people who know that they're sinners of the specific violations that we have made against God's will. So let's read that verse again and then use this understanding, which I think is um, what Paul was getting at here in verse 9. Realizing the fact that the law is not made for a, and I would say self-righteous person, but for those who are, and I would say those who know they are lawless and rebellious. Okay, that's the idea there. The law is made for those who know they are sinners. And so he gives this first general category, those who are lawless and rebellious, those who know that they're sinners. And he's going to follow this with a list of 12 more sins. These first two, lawless and rebellious, just kind of describe all, all sinners. The next 11 are going to describe um, the, the first nine commandments that are broken. And then there's a final one that's used as a transitional one. It's those who do anything that's opposed to sound doctrine. Okay, so let's see if we can look at this. And I think this actually corresponds, these next 11 that we're going to look at beginning at the end of verse 9, these next 11 sins actually correspond with the nine, the first nine commandments. So let me see if we can, uh, let's see if we can see that here in the text. The law is not made for the self-righteous. The law is made for sinners, those who know they are sinners. That's one of the values of the law, that we can actually look into the Scriptures, see that, you know what, I am not meeting up to God's expectation. And, um, and that's valuable. Why? Why is it valuable that we can see our sin and that we don't meet up to God's expectation? Because then we can take the next step, which is to fall on Him for grace. Right? But God, I can't do this on my own. I can't make it to you on my own through just keeping the law. I mean, if I fail in one point, I am guilty of what? Guilty of all, James 2.10 says. So, so I, th- this is not meant for me to come to you to, to make myself holy. It's actually meant to show my need of you. And that's a great place to be. A place of desperation. So, first, ungodly. At the end of verse 9 or middle of verse 9 there, ungodly. I think this corresponds to the first commandment, which is, Anybody know what the first commandment is? That's the summary. You shall not, or thou shall not, to use the King James, thou shalt not have any other gods before me. Right? So the opposite of that would be to have other gods before me, which is ungodly. Right? Um, The next one is sinners. There in verse 9. The second command is you shall not make any graven image. You shall not make any idols. And um, those who oppose God, those who are sinners, are those who make idols. The third command is that you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So it's, it's not reverencing God. It's the opposite of the, the word there in verse 9 is unholy. It's not seeking to, to see God's name and His will as holy, but it's, it's actually um, profaning His name. The next word is profane, and I think this seems to correspond with actually the fourth commandment, which is 
that you shall remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. The opposite of that would be to, uh, you remember the man in Numbers chapter 15, I think it was. Yeah, we saw that last week where he started to gather some sticks for the fire. He was profaning the name of God. He was not counting the day of rest as anything worthwhile. God, you and your laws don't matter to me. I'm going to make a fire. Try and stop me. And God, of course, does. Now, that's that's a, a good example of profanity. The fifth one is an aggravated, um, an aggravated violation of the fifth commandment, which is to honor your father and mother. And what are these people doing here um, for those who kill their fathers and mothers? Mothers. The greatest act of dishonor that you could ever do to your parents is to kill them. And Exodus 21 describes a list of aggravated sins that violate the Ten Commandments. And I would encourage you to, to read through that sometime. Just to, So Exodus 20, is the first part of it is the list of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 21 goes into a number of these commands and shows the aggravated sins that, that are there. That when people take these sins to their extremes, like in this case, they actually kill their father and their mother. And that's what Exodus 21.15 says, that they dishonor their parents through murder. The sixth command in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 20 is, you shall not murder. And so, Paul says, um, the law is for murderers. Those who recognize that they are, they have violated the law and the aggravated murder again is seen in Exodus 21 verse 12. The seventh command is summarized in two here in um, at, at the beginning of verse 10. Immoral men and homosexuals. So the seventh command is you shall not commit adultery. And the aggravated form of immorality is found actually in Exodus 22 this time. It includes more than mar- marital infidelity committing adultery. That's what adultery is. But it also includes premarital sex in chapter 22, and bestiality, verse 19. So it's, it's including more. It's all of these sexual sins um, that are in violation against God. Sex is meant to be done only in the marriage relationship. Um, and, and it's supposed to be just between a man and a woman in that marriage relationship. Any, any other kind of sex that happens outside of marriage, outside of that one man, one woman relationship, is a violation of God's law. The, the eighth commandment is uh, you shall not steal. Exodus 20.15, you shall not steal. And uh, the aggravated form of this is found in verse 10, and that is a kidnapper. Maybe the most aggravated form of stealing is actually taking a person against their will, forcible enslavement. And then finally, the, the ninth commandment is you shall not bear false witness. And Paul summarizes that with lying and perjuring uh, perjuring uh, uh, yourself, being a liar or a perjurer. An aggravated form of lying is a perjurer, which is a person who lies on the witness stand in order to um, get an, an innocent person convicted as guilty. That's an aggravated form of lying. You use your lies to actually destroy someone, not just to protect yourself, but actually to destroy someone. The Tenth Commandment is not listed in Paul's list. Um, So what is the Tenth Commandment? You shall not covet, right? So all these other ones are external commands. You know, um, no other gods before you, no idols, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, honor your father and mother, no murder, no adultery, 
no lying, no stealing. Um, and, uh, and then you have this last one that's more internal. You shall not covet. And why is this missing from Paul's list? I mean, it's, it's, it, there does seem to be some correspondence between that list, even if you don't see all, ten, all the first nine. There seems to be some correspondence. So why leave off the tenth one? It seems to me that Paul is only mentioning the external sins and how they show a clear violation of God's law. And um, the coveting one is a lot harder. That's more of a self-diagnosis that we have to have, but we can only do that when we have a discerning heart that we see that we're covetous. So the compatibility of the law and the gospel is seen in the fact that the, that the Ten Commandments help expose us when we're willing to accept God's Word as truth. But it's also compatible in the fact that it's, it rejects false doctrine. And so that's our final, uh, final point here that we see in verse 11. See the harmony. Uh, the purpose of the law is to harmonize the law with the gospel. To harmonize the law with the gospel. The last part of verse 10 says, "...whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel..." of the blessed hope with which I have been entrusted. So Paul gives a list of sin, but sins, but he wants Timothy and us to know that, that this list is not exhaustive. This doesn't include every single sin we could possibly commit. Any sin that's missing from verses 9 and 10 falls under the category of the last part of verse 10. Anything that's contrary to sound teaching. So when we properly teach the law, sound teaching, it actually supports the gospel. It's, it's in accord with the gospel. It harmonizes with the gospel. You see that in verse 11? See that all this law that he's been talking about is, verse 11, according to the glorious gospel. It actually highlights the gospel of Jesus Christ. It highlights our need for a Savior. It highlights our need for grace. Paul's saying that's our, that's our job. That's what we're here for. You and me, Timothy, we are... You and I, about that. You and I, that's what we're here for. We're here to, to advance the gospel. And the law helps to do that by showing us our sin, showing us how sinful we are as a human being, as a human race. So, two, uh, two things in closing. First, a principle and then an application. First, a principle. The law and the gospel are not enemies, or as I said in the theme statement, the law and the gospel are not incompatible. So we might be looking through this list of, you know, the Old Testament, Ten Commandments, and thinking, okay, well, I'm not under the law. Jesus has already satisfied the law. He has fulfilled the law. But that doesn't mean that we should pit the law against the gospel and just just throw it out. Because, as I mentioned earlier, the law of Moses is an expression of God's eternal law. It, it shows us about who God is, His character, His, his desires, His expectations. The law shows us that God is good. The law shows us that we were meant and made to love Him and to love our neighbor. And when the law is used for the, uh, when the, the law is used rightfully, lawfully, for the Old Testament saint, when the law is used rightfully, rightly for the New Testament Christian, then the law does the same thing in both case, both cases for the Old Testament believer, New Testament believer. It both the law points it to the gospel, points that person to the gospel. It shows us our sin. It shows us that we are not healthy, that we do need a doctor, 
And that doctor is the great physician, Jesus Christ. The law is not for the self-described healthy. I'm all set. It's not for the self-righteous, the ones who think they have no sin. The law is for the one who knows he's a sinner. And so in that way, the law actually helps us to see the sickness in our hearts. It shows us our inability to come to God on our own merit. We have a whole history in the Old Testament of people who tried to come to God, at least a number of people who tried to come to God on their own merit, and others who believed in faith. And so both the Old Testament hearer of God's Word and the New Testament hearer are not saved by keeping the law. The law was never intended to save. And that is what Paul wanted Timothy to expose regarding these false teachers. That's what they were using the law for. See, do these things, do this list of things, and God, excuse me, do this list of things and God will accept you. But they weren't using the law properly, were they? They were using it wrongly. And as a result, they were actually putting unnecessary restraints on themselves if they truly understand the go- understood the gospel, and they were putting unnecessary restraints on the people who are seeking to follow God. The proper use of the law is consistent with the gospel. The proper use of the law actually points us to our need of the Savior, our need of the gospel. And, and until we first realize that, until we first realize that we are by nature, Paul read this morning, Ephesians chapter 2, right? We are by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Until we realize that, then, then the law is going to be no use for us. We're going to use it wrongly. And the re- reason that we are by nature children of wrath is because of our natural state. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2 again. The law shows us this very fact and shows our complete inability to come to God apart from a unilateral work, transformation, regeneration, where He takes our heart and He transforms it. He, he, he breathes life into what was dead. And I'm talking spiritually, of course. God had to draw us to Himself. So the law and the gospel are not enemies. That's the main point, main principle that we see in this text. So let's think about application. And here it is. Though the law is not your master, let it be your friend. Though the law is not your master, let it be your friend. So we are not under the law. We are under grace. But that doesn't mean we we are just free to ignore the law. That it's not any value to us. By virtue of our unity with Christ, the law ought to be our friend. It ought to continually remind us of how far away we were from God. We should never tire of seeing our former state how opposed we were to to God. It ought to remind us of what, what a great miracle that God had to perform to bring us to Himself. And the law helps us to continually do that. Isn't that something that you've seen as we've studied through the Old Testament? That the law is continually reminding us of our former condition. It can also warn us about turning away, right? Like Israel. They had all this great privilege. They had the gospel... We could say, right, the gospel that God provides the way of escape. They had that right there in front of them, in front of them, and then instead of embracing it, they they parted from it. They turned away from it. They grabbed onto something that was shinier, more shiny, something like that. The law uh, had purpose 
and value for the Old Testament. It served as a guardrail to keep them following God and relying on His grace. It kept them humble. And for us, the law, while we're not under it, we're not required to obey it, the law can teach us our need to stay under the commandments of God. Just because we're not under the law, the law of Moses, doesn't mean we have no law, right? We haven't gone from... uh, from legalism, you have to obey the law in order to be accepted to God, to antinomianism, no law. I don't need to obey anything. That's not the point. But what it should do, even though we're not under the law, it should remind us that we need to stay under God's commands and, and, and obey Him. What laws do we have that we should obey? What a great gospel that God has given to us. What a great reminder that we are recipients of God's great blessings. That God showed us our need of a Savior, by showing us our sin. So let's use both the law and the gospel properly and stand up to those who don't. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for how you have used the law in our lives. Many of us grew up on learning stories and um, truths from the Old Testament. And um, thankful that we are not under the law of Moses. Thankful that Christ satisfied all those laws. He obeyed it perfectly. And uh, the law is not meaningless now. It still has value. So we are glad to use it and, and to recognize that it does point to our need for a Savior. It points the Old Testament believer the same way and helps us to be reminded that it can be very easy to fall away. So... Lord, help us not to be self-righteous and to, to act as if we didn't need a doctor or that we kind of, um, we kind of uh, self-saved. Uh, we're self-saved that we rescued ourselves, but we needed a Savior. Lord, we could not come to you on our own. We, we needed your grace. You needed to do a work in us because we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but you, who are rich in mercy, came and, and, uh, and gave to us salvation. While we were sinners, Christ died for us, and we praise you for your grace. And uh, may we live with that constantly on our minds and see that the law does have value when it's used properly in relationship to the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.